Hello, friends. We are back with episode 94 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. My name is Eric Nance, and you know I can never do this podcast anymore without my awesome co-host, Mike Thomas. Mike, how are you doing this fine Tuesday? I'm doing well. You did it before me. It, it went good. I'm not that not that important. Oh, uh, well, you know, the, the numbers speak for themselves. We'll, we'll, we'll call it that. So <laughs> don't sell yourself short. Um, I haven't seen those charts. Yeah, well, you know, yeah, you, you might want to geek out on that fancy dashboard that they give us. So good times. Good times indeed. Speaking of good times, 94. Well, time for a little trivia about the year 1994. Mike, do you happen to know which web browser was invented in 1994 that probably fundamentally changed the landscape of web browsing and the general computing industry? Internet Explorer? Not quite. Not quite. But this gave Internet Explorer a few, uh, you might say, uh, panic moments. Netscape Navigator. This was the precursor to what many now know as Firefox. Ah, Okay, And that started to put a little dent in Internet Explorer's market share and definitely spurred the way for more innovation. And look where we are now. Now Microsoft has a browser that's based on an engine from Chrome. So the times have changed, everybody. The times have definitely changed. And I dare say Firefox is a safe browser. I don't know why anybody would want to uninstall that, but we'll save that for another time. In any event, our curator this week, let's get back to the main business here, is Tony Elharbar. He's been a very enthusiastic contributor for us for many, many months now. In fact, years now. So my thanks to Tony. And of course, he had great help from the rest of our R Weekly team members and contributors like all of you around the world. Now, Mike, often we've wondered if we could ever team up on a project someday. You know, we've ranted about this a bit in our pre and post show recordings that nobody gets to hear. But Imagine if I was pair programming with you to do a little exploratory data analysis on a few specific data sets. Now, imagine that we don't get a fancy, you know, code book or data dictionary with it, but maybe we don't need it because let me test your knowledge here for a second. I have a data set that's simply called TV, the letters TV. You want to take a guess what's in that data set? What's the extension? Dot. SAS7B that. <laughs> oh, no. And it probably has nothing to do with television. I wish it did, but no, it does not. Now, uh, you've got me stumped. You got you stumped. Well, let me, the column names will help you out here. Now, do you think you know what the column names TVENRL or TVSTRL ARMCD or ARM stand for at all? Any guesses? T-V-E-N-R-L, that variable Eric named really lousily. I love that. I wish that was the right answer. Oh, man. Um, hey, you well, asked. Yeah, I did ask. I, I set myself up for it. So um, now for anybody who knows my background, especially in my day job, like Mike really knows, um, those, those were some educated guesses, sure. Um, but you would have to acknowledge that it's quite limiting when we don't have a help or a guide along the way to interpret just what these variable names actually mean. So, of course, I got to, you know, not be mysterious anymore. That data set is from a collection of standards called SDTM, which is part of regular clinical trial delivery in respect for trial visits. So 
There's the more you know for this episode. But I will say that I think our first highlight today covers a really slick approach that you can do to take matters in your own hands and take advantage of a very handy feature with data frames and attributes to make a little more sense of your data. So what are we speaking about about this, Mike? Well, we're talking about uh, Shannon Pelegi's blog post on uh, variable labels in R. And the ever-elusive data dictionary, I think, goes along with uh, this blog post. But this is why I love R Weekly. And there's not a week that goes by where I don't learn something new. Um, and I think this blog in particular is, is a really cool and, and kind of different one. Um, Shannon was recently promoted to lead data scientist at the Prostate Cancer Clinical Trials Consortium. So huge shout out, congrats to Shannon. Um, she authors the fantastic blog, Piping Hot Data, uh, put, and she put together this, this great walkthrough today. One thing I'll just shout out that I really love to see uh, in her blog is that the post starts with the dependencies uh, required to author this post, including the version of R in our studio that she used in the six R packages and versions uh, used to author the post. So I'm sure like you, you talked about, um, Eric, the data sets that you work with coming from SAS. Uh, I didn't realize that data sets from SAS, SPSS and Stata, they actually have variable labels when you bring them into R. Did you realize that? I learned it through the hard way, as you might say. <laughs> and um, it's it's interesting that if you're not careful, you might actually mang them up a little bit in the old days. But now with the tooling that Shannon's talking about, it's really easy to deal with them now, for sure. Okay. Yeah, this is sort of my first introduction to them, I think. I've probably seen them before. Um, when loading a data frame from a particular package or, or something like that. But if you're not sure what we mean by variable labels, uh, imagine that you're in our studio looking at a data frame you created, you know, using the view function or just clicking on that little table icon next to the data frame uh, in your environment. And that opens up a new window in our studio with this nice tabular view of your data frame that allows you to sort, you know, filter the data see the entire data frame essentially. And at the top of the data frame, right, it has the column names for each column. Well, you can also show longer form descriptions for each of those columns right under the column names. And if you still don't understand what I'm talking about, you need to just check out the blog post. Um, Shannon does a great job of showcasing how to create these uh, variable labels manually by defining a label for each column name by hand um, kind of looks like a case one statement using the labeled R package, L-A-B-E-L-L-E-D, labeled R package. Um, and she also shows how to do this if you have like a lookup table, a data dictionary, where one column has the variable name, and then the next column has the variable description or label. Um, for each of these columns using the deframe function, which I think is base R, if I'm not mistaken. That was a new one to me, and and certainly, yeah, the, the tooling in here would have been really helpful for me many years ago, but hey, better late than never. Um, the nice thing about the labeled attributes is that I think they are extremely helpful as you are exploring these data, like you said, putting them up in a viewer. It's very easy to then decipher that this cryptically named one that I shared at the intro here actually has a, a real meaning that makes sense once you actually see it. 
Um, but I think this is an underrated technique to strike a balance between the post that Shannon references and kind of the intro of her post here where Emily Reader did a great post on kind of like data frame names as contracts as you're deciphering how to do how to explore these data and where you can try to use a structure that makes sense when you look at it at a first glance. But like the example I said, and like what Shannon's saying, we often don't get that luxury of changing those names ourselves as part of these more robust or I should say more restricted pipelines. So I think, yeah, these little tricks that are great for taking advantage of labels are extremely helpful. And for the most part, any of the data frame function processing in R is going to be able to work just fine when you have labels in your data frame. There are some older functions that I learned the hard way that don't like seeing that attribute on data frames. So you just might want to watch out for that. But it's very few and far between. Those were very edge cases from 10 years ago. But I'd say if you if you got the if you got the know-how and you've got the use case for this, this is a great technique to aid your um, data explorations and try to make sense of all this, especially when you're getting a data set for the first time. And you know you're going to be looking at this again. So you got to make some notes on how you handle these um, variable assignments for sure. Agreed. Yeah, I guess it can be for the purposes of communicating the definitions for each variable name to others, but then also saving yourself when you have to come back and figure out what the heck these uh, variable names are when you're looking at this project six months after you worked on it previously, right? Um, trying to reduce technical debt. And, and I think it's a nice complement to maybe the other way that I've seen folks do a good job of documenting data sets, which is actually doing that like through I'm guessing it's it's Roxygen, right? If you're including in our data set in an R package, right, it's really important to document that data set as well so that when folks go into the help for that particular data set, they can actually get a nice description of what each uh, column in that data frame means and, and sort of what the data itself represents. And that's something that I think is really important to take the time to do for any package developers out there that are, are using data sets within those packages. Yeah, and, and frankly, the package structure is extremely helpful in many situations, which is a not so subtle transition to our next highlight here. Now, by the way, for those that got our hopes up that this podcast is going to become a retro gaming audio feast, I'm sorry, I'm gonna let you down a little bit, but hey, I got to warn all of you, what we are about to talk about has been deemed by the author as a work in progress and use at your own risk. Are you scared? I'm not, because this is coming from the one and only Colin Fay. And if you're into that little thing called shiny, like Mike and I have a pretty, you know, somewhat vested interest in, then you'll know that Colin and the team at ThinkR have authored Golem which brings the benefits of building your Shiny app as an R package right to your fingertips to follow some state-of-the-art best practices and tooling for orchestrating and architecting your Shiny apps. Definitely useful for very complex apps, for sure. Now, while it's always tempting for me to say, Shiny all the things for creating web-based workflows in R, 
Well, truthfully, that might be too much overkill for certain situations. And that's where the plumber package, authored by Barrett Schlerke at Apposite, is an extremely valuable addition to expose your R analytical magic to any programming language capable of sending web requests to an API endpoint. Now, as with many things in the R ecosystem, we do see a lot of variation in structure for building your plumber APIs. And now we have a Golem-inspired alternative to bringing much of that philosophy and low friction of getting into best practices to the plumber world with Colin Fay's Mario Box package. So Mike, I'm already getting visions on booting up my retro console, but what is Mario Box about here? Oh yeah, I, I already fired up my Super Nintendo. Pretty, pretty, a lot, a lot of nostalgia going on here. But Mario Box is a package um, that essentially is like Gollum, but for APIs and Plumber, like you said. So it's a way to create Plumber APIs as an R package and have all of those nice things that we have in an R package sort of surround the logic of the API that you're building itself. Um, very similar to what we do with Gollum. You know, we have a Shiny app, but there's a lot of infrastructure around that, that Gollum provides, which, which really help, I think, stabilize everything that you're doing and, and stabilize that end Shiny app that you're pushing out to prod somewhere. And, and like you said, um, this package Mario box, very interested to figure out how the name came about. I'm not sure I got that far um, in, in reading the documentation on, on GitHub for the package. Maybe you did. Uh, I have my ideas. I'll, I'll save them for later. <laughs> okay. Okay. And and right now it's an experimental R package, um, but so isn't Brochure, which is another package Colin and, and ThinkR developed for multi-page shiny apps. And I'm pretty sure Jacqueline Knowles built like an entire e-commerce platform with Brochure, which I think is still functioning well today. So now I'm at the point where I think Colin's version of like experimental is sort of my version of like prod stable packages. <laughs> so <laughs> that's probably fair to say with uh, his expertise versus mine. But, and I really love how Colin and the Think Our team just like casually put out a little tweet that's like, hey, we, we built a Golem, but for APIs, um, maybe check it out if you want to. Like, like what? This, I, I don't know, sort of just, <laughs> just hit me and stopped me in my tracks. And I think that this project has implications potentially as big as as what Gollum has done for Shiny. Um, and this package takes the opinion of organizing your API inside a YAML file. And then MarioBox essentially parses that YAML file specs to build your, your plumber API. Um, so yeah, I don't know if you have any other thoughts here, Eric, of where the name came about or how you're feeling about MarioBox. Yeah, I've, I've got thoughts. Um, and I'll say my favorite part, that's certainly more of kind of like what I'm grokking as a philosophy behind Mario Box, is that much how Golem emphasize a functional programming mindset with your shiny apps, and to be more specific, when you try to separate as much of that business logic that the app is performing into a series of logical self-contained R functions, that makes development so much easier and makes your application a lot more cleaner to organize. Mario Box is also emphasizing a very similar philosophy here, where if you declare an API outcome, maybe like a get request to do something, it's gonna under the hood and right for you, create separate functions 
that one does the actual R processing side of things for a given request. And then there's another one that actually does the web-based translation or magic to separate that out so that this main R function, that's what I'll call the, the backend, if you will, you could run that anywhere, really. I mean, you're just returning an R object from it. And then it just seamlessly handles the orchestration of all this into the plumber framework. I think that is a great best practice. So my speculation for the name is that um, I think most of us know Mario's um, occupation and his brother Luigi. They were very friendly little plumbers. Oh. And, I, and I dare say they may have had a, a, a toolbox with it too along the way. So maybe, you know, I'm connecting. But uh, Colin, you listen to this. You you send us some uh, tweets if we're right or wrong about that. <laughs> that is brilliant. How did I miss that? You're you're talking to the guy that grew up in an Atari twenty six hundred. So when Mario Brothers came out in Nintendo, I was a uh, well well versed into <laughs> into all the lore that could be uh, spread around in the elementary school playground when we got our hands on that. <laughs> that is awesome. That is awesome. So I think now we probably have the most seamless transition in our weekly highlights history. I'll give a little drum roll. And yeah, did you say something about APIs, Mike? You heard right. You heard correct. Okay. So it's one thing that like with Mario Box, we're creating our own APIs with a very solid framework, but there's a wealth of publicly available APIs out there ripe for exploration that expose an assortment of data sources, anything from, say, the current stock prices to, yes, even geeky data around Star Wars or Star Trek for our sci-fi fans out there. There's an API for that, folks. And so now we have a terrific resource to share with you in our last highlight today that illustrates how quickly you can get started with leveraging these APIs. And also, even in the case of web scraping, all from your friendly R session of a set of great packages, and from a source that's no stranger to these highlights already, Mike, is that right? Absolutely. Andrew Heiss, back at it again uh, with a beautiful Quarto slide deck that walks through sort of the evolution of, of how you might learn about working with APIs and mature from maybe just downloading the data from a browser um, by clicking a button that that uh, browser has available for you, that that web page has available for you to download the data to maybe the next step of using an existing R package that serves as a wrapper for some API. Uh, if you're kind of in the finance side, QuantMod might be one that you've you've seen a lot. There's a million of them out there. Tweet R, right, is essentially a wrapper for the Twitter API that allows you to, to I believe, get and maybe even send tweets uh, or download tweet data. Yep. And then the sort of uh, Andrew walks us all the way to rolling your own um, wrapper and connecting to an API via the HTTR package um, does a really nice seamless job of, of sort of connecting the dots all the way through. And he talks about the important differences between get and post API requests. Uh, and he's, he's just a great teacher. And I think he's a professor after all. Um, so this slideshow, I think is a, a fantastic educational resource. If you are early in your journey, getting data from APIs using R. I don't know how often you're pinging APIs uh, to get data, Eric. Oh, I've uh, I've pinged a few in my day for sure. Um, in fact, I had a funny, fun little project um, about a year and a half ago where I was pinging the Twitch API to make a little streamer calendar 
but yeah, there's APIs everywhere and data you, you, any source of data, you name it, it's probably out there. So I, I definitely learned a few things that even I took for granted in my API coding adventures. Um, one thing that I should emphasize that, um, Andrew also talks about at the end is that while it's nice that when you get excited about something to start like calling these APIs, like in a rapid fashion to grab all the, all the data and get your hands on, be respectful a little bit. There are resources behind that. And that's where a package like the polite package can really help you automatically be that good citizen with consuming these, these API endpoints instead of like bringing a server to its knees because you were a little too excited. So I do want to make that disclaimer out there. But the other part I definitely enjoyed was hearing uh, or reading Andrew's take on web scraping. It's a lot of times very much like a like a like a an adventure of digging for treasure when you start getting into that inspector in your browser and trying to figure out which element, which oh, CSS yes. tag you need to target. So I love seeing his illustrations of that process in action. But once you do that a few times, if you find your if you find a website that, yeah, didn't have an API, but it had a pretty cleanly formatted table or a, a, a list of things, there are chances are you're going to be able to get it into R at some point. So th this slide deck definitely shows you some interesting and practical ways of getting to that answer. Even though there's no one size fits all, I think the techniques that Andrew talks about are, are very helpful in that adventure. Absolutely. Yeah. You can't, you can't prevent me from getting the data. If there's not an API, we'll scrape it. Right. <laughs> we, we <laughs> never take no for an answer on that stuff. Oh um, just kidding. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great point, uh, bringing up the, the polite package and ensuring that if somebody is providing an API, exactly, there are resources behind that, that they've invested in really for no benefit of their own. The benefit is all for you as the consumer. So one thing that I will especially um, point out is that I think it's easy if it's a get request, but if there is a way to filter the data during your API call, as opposed to bringing all the data in and filtering just down to what you're going to need, maybe using dplyr after the fact, please use the filter that your API service offers. If it's a get request, then that should be pretty easy to just stick in the URL extension. If it's a post request, you might have to dig into the documentation um, that that API service provides. And yeah, they probably have some other query language that you're going to have to to learn, uh, you know, a couple components to just to, to filter down to the data that that you want. But most APIs that I've, I've ever dealt with um, have the ability for you to filter and aggregate during your request, which puts less stress on that API service and, and is a little bit more respectful um, towards towards the folks who, who built that for you. Yep, and you definitely hope that what you're targeting has some robust documentation, and, and most of the, the big stuff does. Um, you might see some you know more niche areas or maybe the documentation is a little more sparse, but that's where hopefully there's a place where you can contact somebody or if they have a GitHub repo, you could maybe file an issue. So definitely there's a bit of variation in that space as well. But if there is some documentation kind of walking you through those available parameters, don't gloss over that because you can make both your life and the maintainer's life a lot easier if you're, um, you know, adhering to those principles for sure. Absolutely.
So there's way more than that in our current issue of Ari Weekly. So now we're going to put a spotlight on a couple of things that caught our eye in the world of Ari Weekly and the art community in general. Well, for me, speaking of previous contributors to our, our highlights that we've had here, Albert Rapp has been back at it again with his uh, video magic. He has a video tailored to one of my favorite topics in the Shiny ecosystem, how to build effective Shiny modules. So that was a very fun watch. And he takes a plotting module and walks through the step from start to finish of or the principles that you have to be cognizant of as you're developing these, how you fold that into a larger Shiny app, techniques for debugging that, and overall, a very nice watch. Not too long, maybe about 10, 15 minutes, but a lot of great information that's a great companion to some of the other documentation that's out there with Shiny modules. I may know a thing or two about one of those articles, but it's a great it's a great um, watch to accompany those. But, uh, Mike, what, speaking of watching, I think you watched something recently, too, that caught your eye. That's a great reference. And I watched uh, today, actually, as we're recording on Tuesday, September 20th, I watched Julia Silge and Isabel Zimmerman present a live tutorial on ML Ops with Vetiver, uh, the R package for model versioning, monitoring, all the, all the ML Ops stuff that you might need to do. Um, that tutorial was using Vetiver, the package, uh, in both Python and R. It's on a YouTube live stream, so I think the recording should be up there shortly if it's not already. But back to our weekly highlights, Sam Edwards and Isabella Velasquez authored a post on our studio's blog that's a really nice complement to that YouTube live stream earlier today. And that blog is about using Vetiver and Quarto together. Ooh, um, that's yes. fancy. Looking forward to reading that. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, it just speaks to ensuring that all of the ML ops components of, of versioning, documenting your model are, are really covered and that you're not, you're not forgetting about all these components in the life cycle of managing your model, which is just as important, if not more important than, than creating the model in the first place. And one thing that I'm really excited about bringing into my ML ops workflow uh, with Vetiver is model cards. Um, and this is a great intersection of Vetiver and Quarto and model cards are for documenting maybe some important aspects about your model, um, you know, the, the version of that model, sort of the input data, what that model accomplishes, maybe ethical implications as well, and just any other commentary that you might want to include, maybe some uh, accuracy statistics for the latest version of that model. If it's not documented, right, it, it doesn't exist, as we say in, uh, in tech. So I think it's important to leverage some of these tools that we have to document your models, folks. Yeah, this is something that I've been very interested in learning about as well, because I remember is about maybe two years ago or so. Um, I believe Chris Albin, who I believe works for Wikimedia or the Wikipedia organization, he used to do a couple of live streams here and there where that was a main focus for his group was to do better documentation of modeling that the Wikimedia or the Wikipedia organization was using. And model cards was something he was heavily focused on. So the fact that we get this template right away to flesh out um, what these model, what the practical details are about these models, maybe the appropriate data for it, the limitations of it. This is something that I think needs to be, I hate to say required, but in, it's a strongly encouraged best practice as you're building these sophisticated pipelines. I couldn't agree more. Yes, I do remember some of those 
Chris Albin videos. I, I don't know if he does too many videos nowadays. I think it's uh, it's it's just him and uh, <laughs> who is it on Twitter that he's always that, that they're always going back and forth with each other. It's it's pretty funny. But he's the he's the model flashcards guy too, right? Oh yeah, yep. Yes. He's a big proponent of that. So yes. I think that's a that's a great a great synergy that we're seeing that more people are opting into, you know, making this workflow easier and great. Um, it's excellent work by the tidy models team and the ML ops team to make that a, a very much a first class approach with vetiver and the like. So awesome. Awesome. find there, Mike. And there's way more than that, of course, but you know, you got to go to rweekly.org to see for yourself. So you'll see the current issue right at the landing page. And certainly we'll always uh, appreciate all of your poll requests for new resources that you've seen in the R community, maybe a blog post, maybe a tutorial, maybe a key event coming up soon. Definitely get in touch with us. Every issue is a markdown document. Very easy to, to draft and understand. There is no LaTeX markup in markdown documents, so you don't have to worry about that. So just send a little pull request and our curator will be glad to take a look and put that into our upcoming issue. I actually uh, submitted my first, I think, or a couple, our weekly uh, submissions this you past sure week. Just, just by tweeting, literally replying to a tweet and tagging rweekly underscore submit. It was the easiest thing I've ever done. Now that needs more attention. So thanks, yes. Mike, for keeping me honest. That is even easier to tweet out your favorite resource to us. And we've got some fancy backend magic that parses through that. And uh, I know the people that built that. So huge credit to John, Carol, and our rest of our curators for re resurrecting that after a little hiatus <laughs> earlier this year. So certainly many ways to contribute to Art Weekly. And we greatly appreciate your support. It helps keep us going for sure. Well, I know you're going many different directions, Mike, but where can people follow you online if they're interested in learning what you're up to? Sure. You can check me out on Twitter at Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K. Awesome stuff. I am at the R-Cast and I am putting finishing touches on hopefully producing some more content that's not just the audio form very soon. And boy, did I have some fun debugging sessions to prep for that. So if you're interested, get in contact with me and I'll tell you all the geeky details of what I've been through the past couple of weeks. <laughs> but no need for that here. Um, we're going to close up shop for episode 94 and we'll be back with another edition of our weekly highlights next week. <laughs>